Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is where we'll start. And today, in some sense, is going to be similar to what we did last week. So this is kind of like part two of the introduction, a compare and contrast of Saul and David. Uh, But just to kind of launch us out for the whole quarter, we're primarily going to be looking at King David. But let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And and just pause there again. In ancient Israel, uh, Jonathan and Saul were probably the only two people that had weapons and armor like this. And so for him to take all of this off and give it to David was Jonathan saying, I know you're supposed to be the next king, right? And it would have been Jonathan, but Jonathan saying, I'm totally fine with that. In fact, not just I'm okay with it, like I'm for it. He's acknowledging what God has already spoken to be true. Uh, and he's celebrating it, really. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So at this point, everything is going pretty well for David and Saul and their relationship. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house. While David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him, as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. So um, think about when at the beginning of 1 Samuel, there's a prophet named Eli, and he has very wicked sons. And so uh, he's told, your sons are not going to follow you as leaders in Israel, but there's going to be this new guy named Samuel. And Eli embraced it, as hard as that would be. Your sons aren't going to make the cut, uh, but there's going to be this new kid. Eli embraced it, and he trained up Samuel to be a great prophet. And in a sense, Jonathan is doing the same thing. Hey, you're not going to be king. This other guy named David is, even though you're next in line. Jonathan embraces it, but Saul can't embrace it. Saul hates it. Saul is angry. Um, And we mentioned this last week, but uh, when, when... Anything other than God's Word, God's approval, God's presence is kind of the main controlling factor in your life. Get ready to be on an emotional roller coaster. High highs and low lows. Because one day the crowd may love you and you'll feel great about yourself. 
But the next day the crowd may hate you. It happened to even men like Jesus. And you'll feel depressed. Okay, And that's what Saul is going through. Uh, so here's what we really want to look at this morning. Saul's influence and David's influence. And I mean that in two ways. What was the primary thing influencing Saul? And then in light of that, how did he use his influence on other people? Okay, so let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We looked at this very briefly last week. I want us to drill down deeper into it this week. Okay? And one commentator said this about Saul. Having lost God's support, the people's popular acclaim was his only support. Again, that's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Right? Because again, we know. I mean, I bet we've all either heard or made a statement like this, especially during football season, and, you know, you see some great coach and he has maybe a terrible game, and you're like, well, you know, the problem with being a college football coach is your whole livelihood is dependent on decisions made by 18-year-olds. But the reality is, if you're any person in any job and you primarily care what other human beings think about yourself, you're in a bad position. Because it will just be like being tossed by the waves of the sea. And we're going to see this happening to King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Let's start in verse 5. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with spear in hand. And all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants, Who stood around him? Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? So he's basically trying to bribe them. Please stay loyal to me and I'll make you rich for it. For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse and... There is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now, just again, we we looked at this very briefly last week. He's paranoid. All of you are against me. Nobody told me what's going on, which is technically not true because somehow he knew about it, so at least one person had. And he's like, and I think all of you are actually against me. And when you get your primary sense of self-worth from what people think, it just by necessity, it will turn you into a conspiracy theorist. You'll be paranoid. You'll be fearful. Okay? Look what's going to happen, though. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priest who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Now, uh, I don't, this was a story. When, when David decided Saul's trying to kill me, he threw a spear at me, I'm going to run away. The first stop he made was where the priest lived. And he's like, I don't have any weapons, I don't have any food. And David lied, okay? And he said, I'm on a secret mission from the king Saul. Will you help me? And the priest greatly helped him. The priest had no idea that Saul and David weren't getting along. But this guy named Doeg the Edomite happened to be at the tabernacle that day, saw what happened, and now he comes and reports it to Saul, and the way he reports it is like, hey, they're in league together. He makes Ahimelech the priest look like a bad guy, although Ahimelech was really innocent. So you understand the context? All right. Now, look what's going to happen. So Saul summons these people. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, 
Here I am, my Lord. Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? So Saul just takes this story, hook, line, and sinker, doesn't do any kind of investigation. This is another thing. When you are being primarily built up and supported by the opinions of human beings, You'll become so desperate, you'll start making really rash and stupid decisions. And that's what we're about to see Saul do here. When you're influenced by other people, you will end up using your influence in a very perverse way to protect yourself, to get what you think you have to have to feel good about yourself. And it will go very bad. So he makes this false accusation. And look at Ahimelech's response in verse 14. I mean, this guy's innocent. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? I bet Saul loved that. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. So he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought you and David were like best friends. I pray for him all the time. I help him out whenever I Of course I gave him bread and sword and did whatever because I thought he's one of the good guys. Verse 16, but the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and they did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands and attack the priest of the Lord. So they're like, hey, Saul, we're with you a long way, but you start telling us to kill the preacher, that's, that's a bridge too far. We're not doing that. Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod and he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. So, again, I know I may be beating a dead horse, but I think this is an important horse to beat because I think so many of us struggle with this so much of the time. If you let what people say or don't say about you have too much influence over you, you will make really bad decisions that won't just be, oh, that was kind of dumb. They will be destructive in other people's lives. I mean, 85 people died that day because of Saul's worry and paranoia, and he didn't trust the Lord. Um, It's a bad cycle of fear, of obsession, of paranoia, of jealousy. Um, And we we don't trust the Lord to protect us. And so we can't rest and we try to protect ourselves in very sinful ways. Okay, I I could give many examples. Uh, Let me just give this is kind of almost a small funny example. Uh, This is years ago. Um, I was a... I think I was still a student and was leading something in campus outreach. And uh, we had sent a team overseas to Japan for the summer. And this was 20-plus years ago before cell phones and all that was very popular. So if you wanted to talk to the people, you had to schedule the right time and get on, like, the old, you know, dial-up rotary phone and talk. And so we had, a, you know, 10 or 20 people in Japan and other people down in Florida. And we were trying to have a phone conversation about how's it going. And they had had a very hard summer in Japan. And there was a, a guy, young, like I think he had just graduated leading the team, and the summer had gone very bad for them. It had just been a hard place. I mean, I think being a missionary in Japan is hard for everybody. Uh, and so at one point, different people on the phone, and they were telling jokes or laughing or something. When I got back on the phone with the team leader, he's like, what were those people talking about? Were they talking about me? Were they laughing about my leadership? I was like, I don't know. I think they were, 
I don't know what they were talking about. Maybe they were telling knock-knock jokes, but I, they weren't talking about you. I mean, these, these are, they don't even know what's going on. But he was so fearful. He was so paranoid. And I don't know what context this may show up in your life, but it, guys, even think about in your family, the most important people in your life, your spouse and your kids. If you, should you care what your spouse thinks about you? Obviously, right? But you shouldn't care about what your spouse thinks about you more than what the Lord thinks about you. And if the most important thing in your life becomes, what does my spouse think about you? Let me just tell this from the husband perspective. I've been a male my whole life, all right, so I'll tell it from that perspective. If, listen, should I care what my wife thinks? Absolutely, I should care what my wife thinks. But if that becomes the most important thing in my world, what does my wife think about a situation? How can I be a good spiritual leader? How could I ever possibly contradict her or call her on anything. Does that make sense? I couldn't be. I'd be an absolute failure. So even the most important people in your life, you have to hold their opinions loosely, certainly when compared to what's the Lord think of you, what's the Lord saying. Okay? So David was influenced by sinful people's words, and thus he turned around and his influence became destructive in other people's life. But let's look at David's influence. And let's flip over to Psalm 52. And we're going to do the same thing. How was David primarily influenced by others? And then, flowing out of that, secondarily, how did David use his words to influence others? So Psalm 52, this was a psalm that was written after David hears about this event. Okay, you can look in the title and see that. A masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So David hears about this. And again, put yourself in David's shoes. David is in this an impossible, seemingly impossible situation. Think about the hardest situation you've ever been in your life. And I think David's was tougher. God has anointed you to be the king. And yet, Saul is still the king. And Saul is crazy and influenced by a demon. And trying to kill you. But you're supposed to be a loyal servant to the crazy, demon-possessed king. I mean, how do you work that out? And so after two different attempts on his life, he finally says, I'll run away. And in the course of running away, he didn't have any food. He didn't have any weapons. He tells a lie. And you could try to justify this as well. Maybe it's like just war theory. It was even a justifiable lie. But because of his little white lie, 85 people got killed. I mean, what do you think that would do to you? Right? I mean, I bet all of us have something on our conscience we wish wasn't there. But I don't think any of us got anything like that. How crushing, how overwhelming that could have been. If something could put you in a depression, that could be it. Let's look at how David handles this. Psalm 52, verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. So what he's saying is, when I think about Saul, when I think about Doeg, what are they boasting in? They're boasting in their own human strength to protect themselves, to fight for themselves, even if it means murdering people. What am I going to boast in? I'm not going to boast in my strength, although he had it, right? I mean, it comes out he's a great warrior. He says, I'm not going to boast. I'm going to boast in God's covenant love. God chose me. That's all I'm going to boast in. That's all I'm going to rest in. That's all I'm going to hope in. Verse 2, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him. Okay, now just pause for a second. 
Um, I want you to think about either a present-day struggle or maybe you have to go back in your history, but the worst time where you feel like an evil person has done something wrong to you. Maybe they've lied about you, slandered, gossiped. Maybe they actually did something to you that hurt your career or took some money out of your pocket, whatever. The Bible never says vengeance is wrong. What is it specifically the Bible says about vengeance? God just says, it's mine. It doesn't belong to you. It's too big, it's too heavy, it's too important. You can't handle it. If you try to carry out vengeance, even where it's due, you'll screw it up and it'll screw you up. So just trust me and let me handle vengeance. So a lot of times we read the Psalms, and this won't be the last thing. You're going through the Psalms, if you're familiar with the Psalms at all, you come across these type of prayers often, right? Where they're basically cursing their enemies and they're like, hey, God's going to kill you. And we're like, how does that work with the whole New Testament and this love your enemy stuff? It really works really well. Because I think what a lot of us try to do is say, I don't have any enemies. Everything in my life is wonderful. And you're either lying to yourself or you're just in a very short season that's not going to last long before you're going to have somebody that certainly feels like an enemy. And so the key is, what do you do when you feel like you're in this situation where you've got somebody that's attacking you? And what you do is, rather than taking matters into your own hands sinfully, you, you pour out your anxieties before the Lord. You cast your burdens on them. You say, Lord, you handle them. Your time, your way, I'm not going to get involved because I'd be sinful if I did. I trust you to handle the problem. Does that make sense? Okay, so when you, when you come across these places, I had a buddy in seminary, uh, he didn't do very well because anytime he was reading a book and it had any Greek in it, he would just like skip that page. You know, he's like, I don't really do well with Greek. So if he came to Greek, he'd just skip the whole page. We ended up skipping a lot of pages. <laughs> right, so he ended up with a, some kind of degree that didn't involve Greek. Now, why in the world am I telling you that story? Because I think that's how some people read the Psalms with these imprecatory Psalms. As we get there, we're like, oh, that's weird, I don't like that. And the next thing you know, you skipped half the book. God didn't make a mistake. They're in there for a reason. Because He knows all the fear, all the anxiety, all the worry that we're going to deal with. And one of the best ways to deal with it is just be brutally honest with God about, I really don't like these people. And I feel like they're lying about me. I feel like they're hurting me. I feel like they're making things worse. But I'm not going to become a vigilante for justice. I'm going to trust you. All right. Verse 6. Anything weird about that to you? The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him. Listen, there's a godly way. It's it's about confidence. Saul, Doeg, you can threaten me as much as you want. I'm not worried. I laugh at your threats. I remember one time when one of my sons uh, was very young and he got mad about something. He's like, Dad, I'm going to beat you up. (laughs) You know what? It's not very respectful. But I tell you, I didn't worry. I wasn't really worried. <laughs> right? It's not like I know jujitsu or anything, but it's like I think I can take the seven-year-old. <laughs> but nor did I even get that angry. I was like, okay, buddy. Right? Well, it was a joke to me. That is how every believer ought to look at the worst threat that even Satan could throw at you. It's a joke. It's not going to stick. I laugh. Now listen, not out of arrogant self-confidence, but out of a God-centered confidence... I'm not worried about that. I can even laugh at your threat. It's just not going to last. It's not going to stick. Verse 7. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Those are the guys that are going to crash and burn. But as for me, 
I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Olive trees could live for hundreds of years. And David is like, in the long run, Saul, your reign of evil is going to be short in comparison. And I'm going to live forever. Verse 9. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. So look at that phrase, you have done it. It's what some commentators will call the prophetic perfect. It hasn't happened yet, but David's like, you can take it to the bank. It's as good as done. God is going to establish me. He is going to protect me. He is going to make me the king one day. When? I don't know. But I trust him. And there's just rest. There's confidence. Now, uh, flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. So, if we ask the question, what is it that David is primarily influenced by? He's primarily influenced by the Word of God. The promises of God. All these people are saying terrible things about him, but what is the thing that resonates in David's heart the most? It's God's Word. It's God's promise. Now, he's different than Saul. So in light of that, how does he use his words to influence other people? 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3. Talking about David again. Um, he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do it to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Now just one little note. We don't have any record in the Bible that God ever said, Hey, David, I'm going to give Saul into your hand. So part of what his men are doing is like, hey, we've got a prophetic word that says this was coming. I mean, and listen, it seems too good to be true, right? David just happens to hide in this one cave, and then Saul just decides randomly to go to the bathroom in this one cave, and David's back there with some of his mighty men, and like, we could kill him right now. This must be the word of the Lord. Right? You ever had somebody try to give you like a personal prophecy? God told me that you're supposed to do this. That, that feels pretty heavy. Right? And especially when it kind of lines up with the deep desire of your heart. This will make my life a lot easier. Verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. And literally in the Hebrew there, the idea is when it says David persuaded his men, it's like he's, David tore his men to pieces. So, I mean, you almost get this mental image of them back in the deep of the cave. And David's like, sit still, I'm not going to let you. You know, that they're just kind of chomping at the bit. I'll go kill him for you. I'm happy to have his blood on my hands for you. And David's having to do everything. I mean, this is like when you're in church trying to be respectable and two of your kids are like getting a fight, right? And you're trying to like silently scream at them, you know, sit still and I'm going to spank you as hard as I can, you know, and that never works because then they scream and makes it worse. Um, I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. But David uses his words to hold his men back and say, no, thank you that you love me that much. You want to fight for me, but I'm not going to let you do it. How do we use our words? Let's just see how this story goes. Um, verse 8, Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, 
David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Now look at how David is going to wisely use his words to even try to influence his number one enemy. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you and said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. So he's saying, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying God will take vengeance on you, but I'm not going to do it. And my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? I mean, look at the humility. He's like, I'm, I shouldn't be that important to you, Saul. Leave me alone. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then David, then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. Now, we all know the story. <laughs> David, I mean, Saul has some type of Repentance seemingly here, he backs off, he doesn't try to kill him, he stops pursuing him for a while, it doesn't last. But this is what I hope will comfort us a little bit. Even the guy that wanted to murder David, because David had spent so much time in prayer, so much time in meditation, he was able to make wise decisions, he was even able to use his words to encourage his sworn enemy to do the right thing towards him, at least for a season. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but that's incredibly encouraging to me. Because prayer works. Prayer matters. If if we were begging God, help me, protect me, give me wisdom, show me how to move forward in this impossible situation, will the Lord do exactly what we want, exactly when we want? Almost never. (laughs) But will He do enough of what we actually need to get us through the situation? Absolutely. Okay? And you might have to keep praying. Right? It's not just one prayer, but at least for now, he had confidence in God. He was able to persuade Saul. Saul backed off. Now, go to Psalm 56. And here's kind of the last question I want us to ask. And Since we looked at Saul's influence, we looked at David's influence, and both times we meant it in two different ways. What were they primarily influenced by? And then secondly, how did they use their influence on others? Now I want to ask the question about God's influence. How is God primarily influenced? And then how does God use His influence? And you can say, wait a second. Isn't there like some verse, Isaiah 40, 13, you know, who's been the Lord's counselor? Yes. Okay. And so you got to be really careful here. God's sovereign. God doesn't need us. And yet, the Bible also, places like James chapter 4, verse 2, you have not. Why? Because He has not. James 5.16, the fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, how do those two things work together? God's sovereignty, our prayers have influence on God. The Bible never totally explains how the two of them work together. But the Bible also just holds both of them up as reality. And part of what it means to live in faith is I just live in that tension. God, I know you've got the whole thing scripted, and I trust you, and yet you tell me to pray, and in some sense my prayers can have influence on you. How do those things work together? I don't know. 
but I'm just going to live in the tension of the faith and I'm going to keep praying like crazy. God, God is so gracious, and I think there's a right way to say God is even humble to allow himself to be influenced by our prayers. So look at Psalm chapter 56. Okay, start in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Now let me just let me pause here for a second. Some of y'all probably heard me say this before, but in studying the life of David, this is maybe the thing that has stood out to me more than anything else. Okay. Is when if you just read about David in the historical books like First and Second Samuel. David almost seems perfect. Yes, we know there's that whole thing with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, but you know, like before that, it's like he almost gets it right every time, right? He's going through these seemingly impossible situations, like we just read with Saul in the cave, and, and it's just like he's almost superhuman. He's like, man, how can he live under that kind of stress and keep making godly, wise, humble, yet confident decisions every single time? He seems superhuman at times, does he not? And then you go and you read the psalms that he wrote during those exact same times, and he sounds like a little middle schooler who got bullied on the playground coming home complaining to his mama after school. Do you understand what I mean? And guys, that was the secret to his strength. He wasn't superhuman. He was a man just like us. He had the same emotions and fears and worries and depressions and weaknesses. But rather than trying to deal with them on his own, rather than trying to deal with them primarily with human help, he took all those fears and worries and anxieties and he prayed them out like a raw exposed nerve to God over and over and over again. These first two weeks, we've done this compare and contrast of Saul and David. Okay, And there's a couple of big differences, but maybe here's the biggest. You know, last week we looked at a, a place where it said Saul never saw Samuel again to the day of his death. You remember that? Hey, I think that's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's pretty early in the story. We're thinking, well, maybe they just didn't get along. They didn't hang out and drink coffee together anymore. It's telling us something much more than that. The fact that Saul never saw the prophet again meant that he never sought the face of God again. And if you read all the books, First and Second Samuel religious first Samuel about King Saul, there's really no record of his prayer life. There's one prayer, and it's like the priest's like, hey, shouldn't we pray about this first? He's like, oh yeah, let's offer a prayer. Very formal. Whereas you see David's prayer life all the time. In the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, half of the Psalms at least bear his name, and probably many more of them. I mean, Saul tried to be a self-made man, so to speak, and it didn't work out well. David really, in a sense, was a prayer-made person and that's why he thrived so much. So let's look at this psalm very briefly. Uh, verse 3, When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. So he dealt with fears, just like you and I do. And God, whose word I praise, and God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of the wickedness cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle, and are they not in your book? He's like, God, I know that you know every tear I've cried. That's what a great, compassionate Father you are. And God, whose word I praise. And the Lord, whose word I praise. And God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
Look at verses 3 and 4 and then again to verse 10. I mean, it's so helpful to have promises that you can repeat over and over, that you can meditate on, that you can go deep in. Verse 12, Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Now, flip over to Matthew chapter 27. We're almost done. And and let me uh, try to give maybe one or two thoughts by way of application. People's words have influence on us, I think, based on two things. Number one, how powerful that person is. Right? If you just happen to hear today that for whatever reason the President of the United States was really against you personally, he found out something about the way that you voted and you didn't like it and he's coming after you. He's making you personal enemy number one. It's like, that's a problem. He has the FBI, the IRS, and all sorts of other government agencies at his hand. He has a lot of power. He can hurt you. Secondarily, how close the person is to you matters a lot. Right? Let's say last night you went out for nice dinner downtown Birmingham and walking past some homeless person on the side of the street, they just kind of screamed at you, hey, you're ugly. <laughs> my, my guess is, unless you just have the worst self-esteem in America, <laughs> that you'd be like, well, that was strange. <laughs> but at least I'm not homeless, right? I mean, I, I look better than that guy. So I'm really not that worried about what that homeless person, they don't have any power, they're not close to me. But then if you come home and your child says something very mean-spirited to you, they don't have a ton of power, but they're close to you, right? It, it hurts a little bit more because you care, because you love them. And then if your spouse says something to you really hurtful, they're even closer. They have even more power. Does that make sense? How powerful somebody is and how uh, close to you they are ought to be the defining uh, way to think about how much of their words influence me. So guys, I just, again, I'm not going to ask you to confess this to anybody. I just want you to be honest with yourself in the recesses of your own heart for a second. Whose words in your life really practically have the most influence over you? Is it really the Word of God? Or is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your coworkers? Is it your friends? I mean, whose words matter more? Now, a lot of times, praise the Lord, our family and our friends and God's Word will all align. And that's just super comforting, right? Like, everybody likes me. Everything's wonderful. But there will be seasons in our life where some of the most important people in our life, their words and God's words don't line up. And then the question is, who are we going to trust? Um, I'll give you one example from modern life, and then we'll give you a biblical example. I heard this story. I wish I had more of the details, but of some type of company that owned, bought and sold Different companies. They owned multiple companies. And there was a Christian that was pretty high up. I think he was the CFO of this company. And at one point, they, they were in all different kinds of media companies. And they were very successful. And, but they did have a charter of, of what kind of companies they could own and not own. And they came across a, a, basically a company that was pornography. And they were going to buy it. It was very profitable. And the CFO is a Christian, probably the only Christian kind of the executive leadership team of this company. He obviously didn't want to do it, but he was trying to think wisely about how to do it. And so he kind of went and looked in their charter, and there was actually something in their charter that said they're not allowed to do this. And so he kind of went to the board respectfully, didn't try to be super self-righteous. He was just like, based on our charter, we're not supposed to do this. I don't think we should do it. And they were all like, ah, we're big enough. Nobody pays attention to that. Nobody's actually going to know. We can get away from it. We're going to make a lot of money. 
And what he ended up doing is going back and say, well, I just let you know, if you do it, I'm going to go to the state government and I'm going to tell them what we've done, that we've broken our own charter. I'm going to be a whistleblower. No, he could have lost his job. And it, it, I don't think it was an easy decision. I think it was a wrestling match in prayer, but he finally landed on, I value faithfulness to the Lord, and I feel like this is what I've got to do even more than my job. Now, praise the Lord in this situation. They backed down, and he didn't lose his job. But I just think that, that may be an extreme example, but when we get in a situation where what we're being told to do by those around us that have influence versus what we think the Word of God is saying to us, what do we choose? Here's the greatest example. Matthew chapter 27, the son of David hanging on the cross in literal excruciating agony. And I just want you to look at what all the evidence was saying to him. Verse 39, and those passing by, so just random strangers on the highway, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, him, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, and they're quoting Scripture at this point, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had also been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ for just a second, right? He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And people are saying, you said you're God, prove it. He could have proven it, right? He could have come down. He could have saved himself at any moment. And that's what everything was screaming at him. In some sense, even his own physical body would have been screaming, this is bad, get out of this. And yet look what he does. Verse 46 about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we know, right, th this is the first verse of Psalm, verse 22. So literally in experiencing hell on earth, what's Jesus doing to persevere through that kind of hardship? He's meditating on the word of God. He's praying the word of God back to God. And through that, God gave him strength to persevere. I mean, and even in that moment, guys, because he was suffering hell in the place of all his people, he didn't have the assuring presence of the Father. Did you know? He didn't say, my Father, my Father, like he almost always talked to his Father in the Gospels. He, can, he only has the faith in a sense to say, I still know you're my God, although I don't still lie. I don't feel like you're my Father. And so... Whatever you're going through, whatever I'm going through. I mean, we, we may even use the phrase sometimes, it feels like hell on earth. It's not hell on earth. And even you say, but I'm in some situation and I don't feel the assuring presence of God. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if we just always had this deep feeling? God's with me. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. I've got to have faith. God will never forsake me. I do have his presence, even if I don't feel like his presence, because Christ lost his presence for me on the cross. And that ought to be the main motivation. It says, no matter what I'm going through, I will be more influenced by God, by His Word, by His presence, even when I can't feel it, more than all the other people surrounding me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know these truths. Please help us to live in light of them more freely, uh, more frequently, 
more naturally. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.